four miles, site of a no longer existent homesteader settlement, Ruby Ranch, remains of the Innskip or Innskeep Rock House, built in the 1860s, largely of native lava, as a fortified stagecoach station and dwelling. Barn is of same vintage. Immediately north is an old cemetery. One of the graves is claimed to contain the remains of Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, the son of Sacagawea. Pomp was carried on his mother's back the entire route trekked by the Lewis and Clark expedition from Fort Mandan. Whether it really is Charbonneau who was buried here is open to question. Supposedly, according to those who believe it is Charbonneau, he died here in 1866 of mountain fever, or pneumonia, while on his way from California to the Montana gold fields. From Ruby Ranch, it is possible to reach Jordan Crater, 10 miles distant by Jeep. But the going is tough. Ralph Friedman, Oregon for the Curious. It is August 2014, and flowers in hand, the Kick-Ass Oregon History Crew is driving through the deserts of southeastern Oregon, looking for a grave. This is some Kick-Ass Oregon History. Another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORHistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Baby Charbonneau. Great fat. Looks different than in the picture. Yeah. It's like it was on a busier road than that. That was also taken a long time ago. Yeah. <coughs> Oregon history. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, 1805-1866. This site marks the final resting place of the youngest member of the Lewis and Clark expedition. <coughs> Born to Sacagawea and Taurus and Charbonneau? Charbonneau. 
Charbonneau at Fort Mandan, North Dakota on September 11, 1805. Baptiste and his mother symbolized the peaceful neighbor, nature of the Corpse of Discovery. Educated by Captain William Clark at St. Louis Baptiste at age 18, traveled to Europe where he spent 18 where he spent 60 years becoming fluent in English, German, French, and Spanish. Returning to America in 1829, he ranged the far west for nearly four decades as mountain man guide, interpreter, mag magistrate, and 49 in 1866. He left California gold fields for a new strike in Montana. Contracted contracted pneumonia in route reached Inskeep's ranch here and died May sixteenth, eighteen sixty five. Thank you. On February eleventh, eighteen oh five. Captain Meriwether Lewis wrote in his journal, At about five o'clock this evening, one of the wives of Charbonneau was delivered of a fine boy. It is worthy of remark that this was the first child which this woman had born, and as is common in such cases, her labor was tedious and the pain violent. Mr. Jessam informed me that he had frequently administered a small portion of the rattle of the rattlesnake, which he assured me had never failed to produce the desired effect, that of hastening the birth of the child. Having the rattle of a snake by me, I gave it to him, and he administered two rings of it to the woman broken in small pieces with the fingers and added to a small quantity of water. Whether this medicine was truly the cause or not, I shall not undertake to determine. But I was informed that she had not taken it more than ten minutes before she brought forth. Perhaps this remedy may be worthy of some future experiments, but I must confess that I want faith as to its efficacy. I'm sure, dear ass-kicker, that you are familiar with the story by now. Messieurs Clark and Lewis trudged across the continent. In their employ was a French-Canadian named Toussaint Charbonneau. Accompanying him was a pregnant teenaged girl named Sakagaway, one of Toussaint's slave wives. Their son, of which Lewis described the birth, was Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Captain William Clark developed quite a fondness for Jean-Baptiste, or Pomp, as he called him. It is thought that he named Pompey's Pillar 
a striking geological formation near Billings, Montana, for the boy. When the party departed for Fort Mandan, Clark offered to take Pomp with him to St. Louis. Clark displayed his fondness for the child at the time when he journaled about the beautiful, promising child who is 19 months old. A bit later, Clark wrote to the boy's father, Toussaint Charbonneau, in August of 1806. He offered Toussaint employment and other support, but also wrote of the little boy. As for your little son, my boy Pump, you well know my fondness for him and my anxiety to take and raise him as my own child. I once more tell you that if you will bring your son Baptiste to me, I will educate him and treat him as my own child. Concluding the letter, Clark wrote, Wishing you and your family great success and with anxious expectations of seeing my little dancing boy Baptiste, I shall remain your friend, William Clark. Eventually, the family did come to St. Louis, as baptismal records show Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau was baptized there December 20, 1809. A Trappist monk by the name of Father Urbain Guillet performed the service. Toussaint signed the official paperwork with an X, and his wife's name was not provided. She was left unnamed, but noted as being a savage of the Snake Nation. The Charbonneaux seemed to not have cared for city life much and eventually went back up the Missouri, leaving the boy in the charge of William Clark. He continued to provide for the boy until 1820, paying for his boarding school and associated expenses, assuring that he received a solid education. Jean-Baptiste attended a school for Métis boys, or half-breeds as they were termed at the time, run by a Baptist minister named Reverend Welch. At some point during this period, the boy left St. Louis and was then engaged with working at the Curtis and Woods trading post on the Kansas River in today's Kansas City. The post mainly traded with the Kansas Indians. In June of 1823, a visitor by the name of Paul Wilhelm, Duke of Württemberg, arrived at the post on his naturalist expedition to the West. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau's life was about to change drastically. Here I found a youth of 16, whose mother, a member of the tribe of Shoshones, or Snake Indians, had accompanied the Messieurs Lewis and Clark as an interpreter to the Pacific Ocean in 1804-1806. This Indian woman married the French interpreter of the expedition, Toussaint Jarbino, who later served me in the capacity of interpreter. Baptiste, his son, whom I mentioned above, joined me on my return, following me to Europe, and has since there been with me. Horizont, man zu Fuß aus dem All. 
Paul was a little eccentric? Maybe that's the right word. Traveling across the globe to pursue his passion for botany does seem like a different lifestyle for European royalty at the time. But as the Duke has been quoted as saying, In the atmosphere of a palace, I would feel like a wild thing that was imprisoned in a gilded cage. The ermine, the scepter, and the crown would be to me the emblems of a galley slave, and my heart would never cease to hunger for the vast, silent places, the simple life among the free, unaffected children of nature. So, a European hippie duke now enters our table. Far out, man. In a large castle outside of Stuttgart, Charbonneau spent the next stage of his life. Not much is definitively known about Charbonneau's six years in Europe. In 1829, he did father a child there, a boy named Anton Fries in Bad Mergentheim. The child lived only a few months, but his birth record clearly states, Parents. Johann Baptiste Charbonneau of St. Louis, called the American in the service of Duke Paul of this place, and Anastasia Katharina Fries, unmarried daughter to the late George Fries, a soldier here. Charbonneau had written nothing about his six years in Europe, or at least nothing that has yet been discovered. Furthermore, historians have engaged in something like a debate about what he did while across the Atlantic, and their conclusions are conjectures based upon a few brief sentences of the dukes that have been further perverted by bad translation and pinches of wishful and romantic embellishment. And let's not forget that the Duke's archives endured the wrath of World War II Allied bombs, so that may have destroyed additional documentation as well. A real historian's clusterfuck. So much for the imagination, but so little in documentation. We asked historian Michael Ritter, author of the book Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, Man of Two Worlds, about this relationship. Now, his relationship with Duke Paul Wilhelm is fascinating to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, what happened in Europe? What was he doing in Europe? Uh... That's an interesting question, of course. Uh, it, it certainly is fascinating. You know, in uh, 1823, he was uh, only age 18 and undoubtedly was eager for adventure, as most 18-year-olds are. Duke Wilhelm, uh, Paul Wilhelm, was age 25 and single uh, at the time in a liberated German state. By liberated, I mean uh, the people 
in general uh, at that time, at least in his state in Germany, enjoyed romanticism in literature and art, and uh, they especially had a reverence for nature. The Duke believed in man's natural state, he called it, as opposed to a rigid monarchy, which he was part of. And that may be the main reason that he admired Baptiste. And, of course, Baptiste was part Indian, educated, and spoke French and English. So Wilhelm could communicate well with him and uh, ask him to go to Germany. And then the Duke wrote in 1830, after Baptiste was gone, that, I'll quote, My heart hungers for vast, silent places and a simple life among free, unaffected children of nature. And uh, Wilhelm dreaded the fact that he was next in line for the throne because uh, being keen would have eliminated his travel to America and Africa. He was a frequent world traveler. Uh, you know, he referred to Baptiste as his hunter extraordinaire because the two hunted together frequently in the Black Forest in Germany, not very far from the palace. And he also wrote that Baptiste, and I'll, I'll do a quote here again, was a, a companion on all my travels over Europe and Africa. And that's, pretty, that's a pretty major uh, event for anybody from America, including a foreign diplomat, to be able to, to do all this. So I also, would, I also believe that they attended operas, palace balls, and other events together. Some historians have assigned the title of close companion to Charbonneau and his relationship with the Duke, implying an intellectual relationship based on the exchange of information and life experiences. This version finds Charbonneau as a traveling partner of the Duke's, enjoying a rich European tutoring and other regal pursuits. But a more pedestrian reading of the scant documentation offers a more pragmatic pursuit that Charbonneau was merely a court servant, as was common with globe-trotting German royalty of the 1800s. Duke Wilhelm also supplemented his entourage with two Africans, an Indian from Mexico named Juan Alvardo, and another Native American named Antonio. Historian Albert Furtwangler has written that in the era, Noblemen often had such subjects in their court to be available at a moment's notice as kind of area experts for questions about their countries. Remember, folks, this is before we all had the Internet in our pockets. Charbonneau may have been a member of a clutch of well-informed servants to wait on the Duke, but also to enrich the intellectual depth of his regal court. Whatever the relationship, Charbonneau left an impression on the Duke on a different trip to America, over 25 years later, he met another Indian man, and memories came rushing back to the Duke. One of the snake Indians was a bright fellow and reminded me of B. Charbonneau, who followed me to Europe in 1823, and whose mother was Shoshone. In December of 1829, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau returned to the United States, and soon signed on with the American Fur Company. He chose to live his life in the wild. He spent years in the West, living in trading posts or sleeping under the stars at night. His life was filled with hardships, hurdles to overcome, and straight-up adventure by the bushel. Historian Michael Ritter tells us of a few of Charbonneau's Western accomplishments. During his fur trade period from 1830 to 1840, uh, he proved that it was smarter to haul furs and hides 
uh, down the North and South Platte rivers across Colorado, uh, as opposed to transporting these virgin heights a thousand miles overland to St. Louis, where you would lose half the cargo just to vermin and uh, and uh, the bad weather. And that was up to about 1840. In 1845, he scouted uh, the first wagon road in the Southern Plains, and that's pretty important because there are trails here and there, but a wagon road means you've done a lot of survey work and you've created something that people can get in mass uh, involved with. And what happened was immigrants were then able to reach Fort Bent in southern Colorado for supplies so they could uh, get on to uh, California. Charbonneau became a mountain man of legendary proportions. One period commentator noted that he was the best man on foot on the plains or in the Rocky Mountains. A vivid description of a camp encounter with the legend on the Platte River in 1842 has survived. The camp was under the direction of a half-breed named Charbonnard, who proved to be a gentleman of superior information. He had acquired a classic education and could converse quite fluently in German, Spanish, French, and English, as well as several Indian languages. His mind also was well stored with choice reading and enriched by extensive travel and observation. Having visited most of the important places, both England and France and Germany, he knew how to turn his experience to good advantage. There was a quaint humor and shrewdness in his conversation, so garbled with intelligence and perspicuity that he at once insinuated himself into the good graces of listeners and commanded their admiration and respect. But one of the greatest stories of the West also featured contributions by Charbonneau. It is the story of the Mormon Battalion. Eighteen forty six found members of the Mormon Church driven from Illinois due to their religious beliefs. The Mormons wanted to move west to establish a new home under their own government. That period also found the United States at war with Mexico and in desperate need for more soldiers out west. A curious union between these two entities was established, a battalion of Mormon soldiers. The only problem was the vast distance that separated the two geographic points, about 2,000 miles. The only way to get the newly established Mormon battalion there was to walk. Lieutenant Colonel Philip St. George Clark said of the endeavor, History may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry. This is Bobby the Wonder Dog territory. The Mormon battalion composed of over 500 men, marched almost 2,000 miles from Council Bluffs in the Iowa Territory to San Diego, California, one of the longest marches in military history. In addition, 
It's the longest religious march in United States history. President Polk explains. June 2nd, 1846. The manner of conducting war with Mexico was the chief topic the cabinet considered. The expedition against California was definitely settled, the cabinet being unanimous in favor of such an expedition. It was agreed that... Colonel Kearney should be authorized to take into service any emigrants, American citizens, who he might find in California, or who may go out with these munitions of war and military stores. Colonel Kearney was also authorized to receive into service as volunteers a few hundred of the Mormons who are now on their way to California with a view to conciliate them, attach them to our country, and prevent them from taking part against us. The Mormon men, who were to actually comprise the battalion, were largely wary of the plan. Some thought it was a government conspiracy designed to evaluate the force or to even prevent the Mormons from heading west. President Polk, felt that he absolutely needed the service of the Mormons, as he advised their leaders, I told Mr. Little that by our Constitution, the Mormons would be treated as all other American citizens were, without regard to sect to which they belong or the religious creed which they professed, and that I had no prejudices towards them which could induce a different course of treatment. I told Mr. Little that we were at war with Mexico, and asked him if 500 or more of the Mormons, now on their way to California, would be willing on their arrival in that country to volunteer and enter the U.S. Army in that war under the command of a U.S. officer. He said he had no doubt that they would willingly do so. The Mormons started off their march on July 20th, 1846. They arrived in San Diego on January 29th, 1847. Marching from present-day Council Bluffs in Iowa, the men and some 80 wives and children trudged to Fort Leavenworth. There they received arms and equipment but not uniforms. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau served as a scout for the battalion. The Mormons employed a few men to assist them in this role, mainly Mexicans and Indians. They were to, well, scout ahead of the main column, looking for the best route, and of course, water. Charbonneau arrived a few days after the march began. The march was largely devoid of combat, except for, near present-day Tombstone, Arizona, occurred the Battle of the Bulls. The first phase of our offensive was a success. The element of surprise was complete. The American communications are in a turmoil, but we must cross the Ur River before the enemy realizes that we have launched an all-out offensive. No, 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 not the bulge. Bulls, 
the battle of the bulls, like a cow with a dick. You got it. The battalion was marching when several dozen cattle came tear-assing down a riverbed. As Sergeant William Corey wrote, December 11th, 1846, traveled 13 miles down the stream to the north. During the march today, the command was charged upon by a herd of wild cattle. Sergeant Smith of Company B and Private Field of Company C were run over, and the former was considerably injured. Two mules were gored by the bulls, so their bowels gushed out. One of the mules was harnessed in a team at the time. Considerable shooting was done. Lieutenant Stoneman accidentally shot a ball through one of his hands. And he had a slide gun or a 15-shooter. Two loads exploded at the same time. One ball passed through his hand. Several bulls were killed. Henry Boyle wrote of the Battle of the Bulls. We wounded some and killed 10 or 12, and while we were shooting among them, they became desperate. The smell of blood seemed to fill them with fright. They wounded two or three of the boys, killed three mules, and upset a wagon. The Indians have killed nearly all the cows, and the bulls are as daring and savage as tigers. On a march that covered 2,000 miles, this was the only armed engagement for the Mormon battalion. Samuel Rogers spoke of the hardship of continual march through the Arizona and California desert. January 5th, 1847. Traveled down the river 12 miles. Our rations were again reduced to 9 ounces of flour and 8 ounces of pork per day. We learned that they failed to boat the provisions down the river because of the low stage of the water. So they were left behind. This cuts down the rations of flour for Company B to seven days. Rogers details an arduous and tedious journey at the verge of hunger through the middle of the desert. Monotony, heat, always at want for food, for water. January 6th, marched 15 miles and camped. Walter Davis shot a pelican. Our mess bought a beef's head, which we dressed in the regular manner. We scaled the skin and pulled and picked the hair off and boiled it with the rest of the head. January 11th. Prosecuted our journey west for 15 miles, but left four wagons on the way. We obtained water by digging. The sheep did not come in and our rations of flour were now reduced to eight ounces of flour a day per man. January 12th, 
marched 20 miles to the west, camped without water except what we brought with us. One or two wagons were left behind. Under the attentive watch of Charbonneau and the other guides, the Mormons eventually made it to California, providing the United States with a much-needed military presence in the area, until they were discharged in July of 1847 in Los Angeles. Charbonneau also stayed in California. He served as a mid-level civil servant, a magistrate in the San Luis Rey Mission near San Diego. He lasted at the position for less than a year. Historian Michael Ritter. And then in 1847, uh, Baptiste was appointed to be a post-war alcalde by Governor Richard Mason. This was uh, where you have the chaos of, of battle finished and now who's in charge of anarchy. So he was ordered to confiscate large Mexican ranches and also to end the practice of uh, the fact that Indian workers were being paid with alcohol to work these ranches. And uh, this was quite a challenge. Uh, he, he couldn't do it all by himself. He had no staff. He had no jail. But he did, he did open the notion of civilian control of a foreign country uh, after the end of a, of a war. In 1848, Charbonneau headed north and prospected for California gold. He never hit the jackpot, but he stayed in California for some time, eventually working as a clerk in the Orleans Hotel in Auburn. But Charbonneau was always on the move. Like a cheesy metaphor of the papoose strapped to his mother's back, bouncing his way to Oregon. Hearing of a new gold rush in Montana, at the age of 61, Charbonneau hit the road again. He was headed for Shoshone country, his mother's homeland. Maybe this time, he would strike it rich.
but tragedy befell our beloved protagonist in the southeastern corner of our state. While crossing the Owyhee River near Rome Crossing, Charbonneau was stricken by Rocky Mountain Fever, or possibly even pneumonia. Whatever the specific label of the malady, the result was final. A stagecoach stop near Danner, Oregon, May 16, 1866, saw the death of Jean-Baptiste Pomp Charbonneau. Period papers noted Charbonneau's death at the Innskeep Ranch in southeastern Oregon. Kick-Ass Oregon History visited the location on our recent summer road trip. Yeah, go ahead. So at the grave of Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, there's a rather eclectic collection of offerings. What can you see, Molly? Uh, shoes, pine cone, beer, um, a lighter, a glue stick. <laughs> dice a hair clip more beer water bottles a baseball hat a soccer ball honey honey some tobacco a plastic flosser recently dead birds by the look of the jack in the box antenna topper a portland timbers football club uh Oh, scarf. Scarf. Yeah. Cards. Recently dead birds by look. Though not like the dead bird expert. Yeah, the dead pheasants are interesting. Yeah. There's the Daughters of the American Revolution placed the uh, stone here. Yeah. So what do you think, Doug? What are your thoughts about coming all the way out here, finally seeing it. I think it's pretty cool. It's, uh, it, w it did not disappoint. It's even more remote than I imagined. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like some dude's ranch. Yeah. And there's a uh, significant historical marker right there. And there's another little one back here where that uh -huh. that old stone house is. Yeah, we'll stop off there. We'll, we'll take some out. pictures of the general store. No, but I'm I'm pretty uh pretty pleased. Glad we made the detour. Well, I mean it was destination. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say this wasn't the detour. This yeah. was the this is where we wanted to go. Yeah. And I'm glad we could lay some flowers out, which we surely before you urinated yes. on his grave. <laughs> well, close to. Yes, exactly. They're just. Never have been too many folks in this area, so the burial ground at Inskip was diminutive. In addition to Charbonneau, the little graveyard contained four other bodies, interred under piles of lava rocks. Two small children lay in the little sagebrush-surrounded cemetery. One is Gertrude Inskeep. The other is listed simply as Emigrant Child. Two other men were interred, but these two fellows have a little controversy attached to their identities as well. Popular lore has these two remains as two soldiers, but the avalanche 
lists them as Ethan Wright, who died in 1869, and James Doe, who passed in 1881. In the early 1960s, the graveyard was almost removed from history by an absent-minded county road grader, though to say that for years it was nondescript is a bit of an understatement. In 1971, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. The grave today is kind of a bizarre place. An American flag billows over the hot, sandy site. Bottles and jars filled with various liquids adorn the spot, along with coins, feathers, beads, medals, and other talismans. We left flowers at the grave, but others had offered up pheasant carcasses, little soccer balls, and a timber scarf. Michael Ritter talks about the grave. Having gone to his grave site myself uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, the grave site seems like a destination on a pilgrimage. You know, I, we, we posted a photo of it, and uh, one of our Facebook commentators said it, it looks like Jim Morrison's grave in Paris, only with sagebrush all around it. it why are people almost making a spiritual connection with uh, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau? Well, you know, it actually is a spiritual event for some people. Uh, maybe it's kind of like visiting almost any grave in some way. That's, that's sort of a spiritual time for people. Um, people leave thoughtful mementos at his grave and others because they know who he was and how he lived. And uh, Indians visiting the site will commonly burn sage to send him protection. Uh, and he's especially meaningful to the Mate Indian people, which is spelled M-E-T-I-S, the French word. These, these Indians were half French and half, half Indian, and of course, what Baptiste was too. I've traveled somewhat in the West, and I've seen mementos at Mordock Chief Captain Jack's grave and uh, at the Blackfoot Reservation historical graves. They're actually pretty common in the West. A confusion of bronze plaques at Charbonneau's grave. One is from the Malheur chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Another was provided by the Oregon Historical Society. And one more is from an amalgamation of Idaho residents, including some of the Lemmy Shoshone family descendants. These markers not only serve as headstones, but also offer a jumbled interpretation. And looming over the site is a more monolithic interpretive piece, hulking in wooden, embossed with a beaver in letters that spell out Oregon history. It is a mismatch of commemorations from different eras and from disparate organizations, all competing to tell their story of this somewhat famous man. But as our dear friend Ralph Friedman hinted at at the introduction of today's podcast, is Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau really buried in southeastern Oregon? In Wyoming, on the Wind River Reservation, is a plot with three graves. One of them is marked Sacagawea. To her right is the grave for her adopted son, Brazil. On her left is a grave marked dedicated to the memory of Baptiste Charbonneau, papoose of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, 1805 to 1806 
son of Sacagawea, born February 11, 1805, died on this reservation, 1885, buried west in the Wind River Mountains. So, are Charbonneau's earthly remains actually in Wyoming? A 1971 article entitled Charbonneau's Burial Place Veiled by Conflicting Claims looked into the matter. As a source, the piece cited a Reverend John Roberts who had written about the issue. The Reverend had been churching on the reservation for 50 years when he recorded, Baptiste, Sacagawea's son, mine knew well over a period of years. He lived and raised a large family on the reservation. He made his home about three miles from the Shoshone Mission until he died and was buried in 1885, according to the ancient custom of the Shoshones, in the rocks in a canyon west of the mission. Additionally in the article, the 1941 findings of a Wyoming state historian were dug up. She had interviewed two aged Indians who had lived on the reservation, supposedly with the famed man. They claimed that Charbonneau had lived at Wind River with two wives after 1871 and that he died shortly after his mother had passed away, about 1885. Nothing authoritative, but... Curious, indeed. Of course, once a red flag is raised like this, everything just sort of jumps out at you. You come across seemingly important tidbits regarding the mystery almost everywhere you look. And the print on the National Register of Historic Places nomination form for the Oregon Charbonneau gravesite is not absent of that quality. It reads... The authentic and final resting place for the youngest member of the Lewis and Clark expedition has been established to a general satisfaction as that common burying plot adjacent to the county right-of-way approximately 580 feet north of the ruins of Inskip Station in Malheur County, about 15 miles west of the Oregon-Idaho border. The need to assert that this site was authentic and the validity had been established to the general satisfaction, of course, seems noteworthy to the current concern. We asked Michael Ritter, author of Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, Man of Two Worlds, about this grave issue. And is there any doubt in your mind that Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau is buried in southeastern Oregon rather than in Wyoming? Well, that's a fair question. Um... I can tell you that in 1866, which is the year he died, fate and the Montana gold strikes uh, brought him to Oregon from California, Auburn, California. He fell into the Owyhee River there at the Rome crossing uh, during uh, spring runoff. And uh, two unnamed companions carried him to the stage stop at the, at the Inskip Ranch at Danner, which I think you were very close to, uh, the remains of, of the chimney at least are still there. And that's where he died on May 16th, which was published in an obituary in the Awahi Avalanche newspaper, which came out of Ruby City in Idaho Territory. Uh, his fellow travelers wrote in the obituary that Baptiste was buried at Inskip's Ranch near Cow Creek and died of pneumonia. 
well, in my opinion, his two companions actually described who they were traveling with and on whose ranch he was buried. For me, that leaves little doubt of where he was actually buried. Now, another obituary was written on July 7th in the Placer Herald in Placerville, California. And this one uh, fully accepted the Hour of the Avalanche version and actually expanded on it considerably. So the dispute question then is, uh, came from Hidatsa Indian oral history in um, uh, Wyoming at the Winter Reservation. And it also was based on um, <clears throat> a fictional account of Sacagawea's life in 1932. So a mistaken gravesite for, for Baptiste still stands on this reservation. Is Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau an Oregon hero? Or just a character of Western history who had the misfortune of dying in a very isolated, very fucking hot corner of our state? I don't know. It seems very likely that he is buried here, in a grave that establishes to the general satisfaction that he and four others are buried in happens to be in our state. And this essentially mass grave is on the National Register of Historic Places, so that is certainly a big deal. I'm sure that James Doe, an emigrant child, are eternally pleased by the association. Historian Albert Furtwangler rightly draws attention to the context of Charbonneau's life. Just imagine, he was on the first American expedition to cross the West. He did so several more times in his life, bringing white settlers to conquer and tame these wild Indian lands. The change that his eyes saw. In addition, he lived until just past the Civil War and witnessed a serious, significant series of epochs in our nation's history. What I would give as a historian to be able to read his learned impressions on the changing country he lived in. Fert Wangler notes that in an 1866 obituary written by a friend of Charbonneau's, the author spoke of the man in glowing terms, but never once mentioned Lewis and Clark. He never mentioned Sacagawea by name, just stating that his mother was a, quote, half-breed of the Crow tribe. Can one do this? Can we separate the legendary papoose from the famed mountain man? From the scout on the Mormon battalion? From the hotel clerk or the prospector? Famous pedigree cast aside, the eulogizer simply stated that Charbonneau was of pleasant manners, intelligent, well-read in the topics of the day, and was generally well-esteemed in the community in which he lived as a good-meaning and inoffensive man. Honestly, can any of us ask for kinder words of our non-famous passing? To just be relegated not by our birthright, but just for being a damn good person? I say for that reason alone, we consider Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau a true Oregon hero.
Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-Ass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at orhistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin, or he'll bury you in a grave on the side of some obscure Malheur County road. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! Again, he said, he was such a rugged mountain man, I imagine that he would give a shit.
that I pissed near his grave. In fact, maybe he might appreciate coming all the way to Port from Portland to piss near to his urinate grave. on his grave. Near traveling with your companion. Yeah, exactly. My my man companion. Yes. Uh, well, they go on a lot of trips together. They've been friends for a really long time. He taught me to pick Latin. Your father and I. You guys gonna sing that song for the for the recorder, Molly, Max? No. See, they know. They are yes. savvy. Yeah. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put black tape over the buttons. Uh huh. So they can't tell. ORhistory.com